We are continuing our uh, series of lessons in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the week that it starts to get uncomfortable for us. Um, So the first couple of lessons, you know, we've talked about the Beatitudes, we've talked about the concept of shining like a light in the world around us, or of being the salt of the earth, or a city set on a hill. Uh, We've talked about, um, uh, last week we talked a little bit about our relationship to the law of Moses, and uh, and Jesus' idea of of fulfilling that, uh, and our continuation of that, fulfilling the law of Moses through our actions and interpretation, and and a a surpassing and exceeding righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and and that's that's all great stuff, I think. Uh, you know, you talk about that and you say, okay, yeah, be righteous and, and shine like a light and, uh, and be blessed and all of that stuff. Well, this is the week where Jesus starts saying, and this is specifically what I'm talking about. Um, how are you going to shine like a light in the world? When you get to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, he begins a series of statements where he'll say something like, you have heard that it was said, or the ancients were told, and he'll quote a piece of scripture, and often an interpretation or a common way in which that scripture is practiced. And then he'll say, but I say to you this. And what he's doing is he's comparing and then contrasting the way many people have taken this scripture with the way Jesus wants us to take this scripture. He is not saying, you've heard this scripture, well, don't listen to that, listen to what I'm saying instead. He's saying, you've heard that it was said this, and I'm going to tell you how to do that in its realest way. One of the problems we can all fall into when it comes to our obedience to Jesus or to uh, Scripture or in Jesus' day to to Torah um, is that you can hear the external commandment for the way your life should be, and you could fail to let it transform you internally. What Jesus is going to be doing with each of these is he's going to take a commandment that people have tried to obey externally, and he's going to show you that the original intention was actually to transform who you were internally. So, for example, yeah, you shouldn't murder. Like, he's going to say that in chapter 5 and verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. All right, so don't do that, you know, and hopefully hopefully, most of us in here can, can do pretty well on that one. Uh, you know, let's not go out and murder folks. But the reality is most people know that. Most people uh, will live their lives under the understanding that they shouldn't go murder people. Uh, the next thing he says in chapter 5 and verse 21 is whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Okay, so that's actually not a quotation from any one passage, but it's an idea that you can find in Scripture uh, that basically you murder, you get arrested, you're going to be tried, and it's actually a capital crime uh, in ancient Israel. And so uh, murder is something you should not do, and murder is something that can lead you to uh, imprisonment or death or punishment, whatever. Okay, so that's what you've heard, he says. But if you look at pretty much every society that exists— they're going to have a law against murder. Just about every group of people in the world knows that that's wrong. The external act of murdering somebody is is wrong and we shouldn't do it. Jesus then wants to say, but I want you guys to shine as lights in the world. I want you to be the city set on a hill. And you don't do that by just following the laws that everyone else follows. 
He wants you to take things to a deeper level, a more fulfilled level of righteousness. He's going to take the law and fulfill it by bringing out its fullest meaning, which is to say, I want this not only to make sure your hands don't harm people, but I want even your words in your heart to be transformed by this. I want anger to be put away from you. I want abusive and harmful and cruel speech to not be named among you. When people see anger, there are like thousands, uh, probably millions, of videos that you can watch on uh, YouTube or on Instagram or, or whatever where people lose control of themselves and people are filming it. And like anger never really brings about, as James says, the righteousness of God. Uh, you don't often see in those videos when someone gets so angry, they start making good, healthy decisions for the future. Anger has a way of blinding us. Rage has a way of turning us from who we want to be into people that we never thought we could become. In fact, anger is one of those things that if it's left unchecked, even those of us in here, I made a joke kind of a minute ago about how, you know, most of us in here probably aren't going to murder. If you let anger fester, you actually don't know where it can end up. You might end up being someone and doing something you never in a million years thought possible. There are people who are in prison, even for murder, who never, ever thought they would get there. Because anger left unchecked can change you. It can transform you, and it can mold you into its own image. And you could, you, you, you could end up being a cane when you thought you were an able. You can end up being something you never thought possible. And so that's why Jesus is saying, let's not read the law and only focus on the external but let's try to actually be transformed by it inside so that it affects who we are. Yes, our hands, but also our mouths and also our hearts. So Jesus is going to do this repeatedly with the law. And the logic, I think, that Jesus is going to use for so many of these teachings is rooted in the understanding of our value before God. Every person that you see is a person that God created in his image. The imago Dei, the image of God, is something that we share, and it's a gift given to us as human beings. And so whenever you see someone, you're seeing someone who exists for a reason. You're seeing someone that God loves, and you're seeing someone that God wants ultimately to be reconciled to him. And so when you see that, the, the, the reason in the, uh, Genesis chapter 9 against murder was you shall not shed man's blood for the image of God he created him. The image of God is why you treat other people with dignity and respect. Well, as Jesus is going to say in verse 22, he's going to take anger or murder and apply it to anger and apply it to, uh, to your words. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, or uh, raka is one translation, or idiot is another translation, uh, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. All right, so Jesus right here is saying, all right, you've heard that it was said don't murder, and you can get in trouble for murder. Well, in the kingdom of God, we're going to back that up a bit to the root causes of murder, to the feelings that you have in your heart, and to the words that come out of your mouth. And you're going to be held accountable for those. Those are the types of things that, that God is going to be looking at. And if you truly see someone as a valuable human being created in God's image who is worthy of dignity and respect, then why would you use words about that person that 
undercut the very image of God within that person? Why would you use words about that person who is created in God's image and bears God's image, and you call them an idiot or a fool or worthless or good for nothing? All of a sudden, what are you doing to the very creation of God? What are you doing to the very image of God? You're insulting that. And so every person you see is worth more than that. And so Jesus is wanting us to see supreme value in one another. And that's why here you don't uh, insult and you don't uh, grow in unchecked anger towards another person. As you keep reading, he'll talk about lust. And we'll talk about this in the, in the coming weeks. But what, what is lust? Lust is the absolute objectification of another person. The denial of who they are for the sake of your own personal gratification or satisfaction or pleasure. I mean, that's, that's what lust is. You don't, you're not look, lusting for a person because you care about who they are. You're lusting for a person because they bring you pleasure. And that is absolutely the the wrong way to treat with dignity and respect someone for whom God created in his image. And I think you can do the same thing with divorce, and you can do the same thing with lying to other people, and you can do the same thing with revenge. And so with each of these, he's wanting us to see ultimate value, dignity, and respect in another person. Throughout each of these statements also, he will use uh, generally some hyperbole. He'll say some things that uh, are difficult to apply literally. Um, For example, in verse 22, when he says, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Okay, so if murder gets you arrested, Jesus is saying, no, I'm saying anger will get you arrested before the court. He says, whoever says you good for nothing shall be guilty, my translation says, before the supreme court. You might have a couple of different translations there, but in Greek, if you're reading that, that's the word Sanhedrin. So what he's saying is, you know, in in the Jewish court, you'll face a low court for anger. You're going to face the Sanhedrin for uh, calling someone worthless, and then for calling someone a fool, you'll face God's court. Now, literally, you're probably not actually going to take someone to stand before the Sanhedrin and say, Jesus told us so, so you got to stand here because you called me a name. Uh, It would be like in America saying, okay, you're going to face a lower court if you get angry. You're going to face the Supreme Court if you you, uh, insult someone, and you're going to face God's court. The point of all of it is that when God is watching, he sees each of these actions. He sees murder. But he also saw the harmful words that caused you to devalue that person and see them as less than human. He also saw the anger that started festering in the heart before those words ever came. He saw the entire thing. And he wants you to begin working not just on eliminating this, but going all the way back to the beginning and getting that out of your heart. The reality is uh, none of us are, are probably ever going to get perfect at applying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, anger is real and it happens to us. And sometimes we don't even choose it, we just discover it's there. But what do you do with it when you find it, I think is the question we need to ask ourselves. Do you feed it? Do you let it grow? Do you start using words that justify your anger and that start devaluing that person so now you feel justified in your hatred of that person? Or do you start working on yourself and saying, I need to, I need to have a reality check I need to start backing up. I need to start rethinking why I'm feeling this way, and I need to start thinking about what I can do about it. Because in every one of these instances in verse 22, the question I think we should ask ourselves is, what is our goal for the person with whom we find ourselves angry? Is your goal for that person to be murdered? 
Is your goal for that person to uh, begin to feel worthless as a human and to recognize that they are subhuman? That's what those types of insults do. When you insult a person, you are devaluing uh, who they were created to be. And so is that your goal? Is your goal to, to let them stay on your heart and mind with attitudes of frustration for the rest of your life? I mean, what, what is your goal? Well, as followers of Jesus, our goal for the, them, as we just had a good lesson in, during the Lord's Supper— while he was dying on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Our goal is their ultimate reconciliation to God and their forgiveness before God. And our way to go about meeting that goal is to demonstrate that type of forgiveness and reconciliation among ourselves here and now. We offer them now what God has offered for them uh, in the age to come so that they can begin to see the beauty of God's offer through us, his people. You're not going to do that when, if someone disagrees with you politically, all of a sudden they're a fool, or all of a sudden they're an idiot. Or if someone was rude to you at work, all of a sudden they don't matter anymore. Or if somebody did this or this, if you cut them off and you say, no, I'm angry and I'm justified in my anger, and I'll be angry as as long as I want to be angry, and I won't murder them, but I'll use every harmful word that I could think of, and I'll talk bad about them to other people, then, yeah, you might, in a sense, be kind of following the law that says don't murder, but you've lost the whole purpose of it, which was to bring about reconciliation rather than the end of a relationship. It was the purpose of it was to value another person rather than to find new creative ways to devalue that person. That's what the law is calling us to do, and that's what Jesus is calling us to do. There's also very practical uh, wisdom in what Jesus says. He wants us to try to, to overcome anger through love, to overcome insult through, uh, through kindness and charity. He wants us to overcome hatred with, with love, and he'll, he'll see that as the sermon continues. But one of the ways you do that is by recognizing that reconciliation truly matters. It is one of our most, most important calls as Christians. In the next verses, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus is going to make an, an illustration about someone who has gone to make an offering, and they there remember that their brother has something against them. What does he say to do? He says, leave your offering and go be reconciled. Why is he saying that? I think he's saying that because we might think, okay, well, our relationship with God is most important. Our relationship with one another is like secondary. And our relationship with our enemies is way down there at the bottom. And so what I need to do is make sure worship is the most important thing. And then I'll try to get along with my friends and family and some people from church. And then, you know, the people down there who I'm I'm angry with or who are angry with me, I'm just going to cut them out. What Jesus is saying is loving God and loving man, they shouldn't really be a hierarchy. You actually do them in in concert with each other. They are a, a unity. One of the ways that you love God is by loving your fellow man. And so if you think that you can cut out reconciliation with man and just skip straight to worshiping God, you've missed a fundamental reality about the call of Jesus. Even more important than your sacrifice and your offering is your relationship with one another. So try to prioritize and recognize the value of that. Also, just practically speaking, and this is something hopefully every one of us can recognize, the more enemies you make in this world, the worse your life is going to be. 
and the harder your life is going to be. If you make enemies with your neighbors, you will never be able to mow your lawn in peace because you'll always be like, are they going to walk out? You're like, like it's, it's, a, it's, it's awkward, it's frustrating, and it's not going to work out well for you. If you have people who are actively seeking your harm, then when they get the chance to to take advantage of it, they will. So that's why in verse 25 and 26, Jesus ends his teaching with just a practical scenario. Imagine you're walking to a courtroom with someone who's going to sue you. What should you be saying to them along the way? How dare you, you rascal? You're being selfish and you're being greedy and you're really dumb. Like, should you say something like that? I'm not good at coming up with insults on the spot. Uh, but, uh, but you know, like, should you be responding like that? Or what he says in verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you were with him on the way, so that your opponent will not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid every last cent. Um, there are some, some passages like this that are a little strange to us because when we think of prisons, we usually think of, of prisons existing because someone committed a crime. Most of the passages about prisons that you'll read in, in the Bible, uh, they come more so from you go to jail when you owe money and you can't repay it. And so you go there, and that's, that's uh, until you're able to repay it. And once you're able to repay it, you're, you're allowed to get out. Um, and so it's often like a place for people in debt. And so what he's saying is, if you don't want that to happen, then try to actually mend the relationship rather than just sinking your teeth in and making it worse and worse and worse. But what if they're the one who's wrong? Well, when you're sitting in jail, that's just not what matters all that much. What matters is whether or not you could have been reconciled and you chose not to. So reconciliation for the Christian should always be on the table. We should be willing to extend it. That becomes really, really hard. And it's not guaranteed you always will be reconciled. But on your part, it should always be offered. It's not guaranteed that you always will be able to mend a relationship, but that shouldn't be because we're the ones refusing and rejecting. We are the ones who should be leaving our offering and going and trying to make reconciliation happen. We're the ones who, while being sued, should be trying to make friends quickly. We're the ones who should not be using angry and hurtful words and insults against that person. We're the person who should be transformed to love even our enemies from the inside out. Jesus says that's what you should be getting when you read You Shall Not Murder. There's a lot more than just not killing that person. There's a lot that goes into it. So what are we going to do with this? Um, I'll be honest. Uh, anger is like anything that's, that's kind of an emotional response. It is difficult to fully control it throughout your life. Uh, as I said earlier, you're never going to get perfect at this. But what are you going to do when you find that anger is a part of your life? You know, one of the things that, that's helpful to recognize about anger, and I think this is true uh, repeatedly in my life, is anger is very closely related to just a loss of control of a situation. You want to control things. You want things to go a certain way, and it's when that control gets stripped from you or frustrated that you find yourself getting angry. I want to go to the store. I want to buy some peanuts, but as I'm trying to head out the door, I can't find the keys. Now I get angry. Why? Because I had a plan. I had a goal. I had something I was going to try to do, and now all of a sudden I can't do it. And, and how long is this going to take? And where are they? And who put them there? I bet it was one of the kids. And all of a sudden, you, you find yourself blaming other people, and you find yourself frustrated and irritated because the plan that you had for your life 
it got interfered with. Uh, whether it's someone at work who's not doing what you think they ought to be doing. You think they should do this, and they're doing something else, and all of a sudden it becomes frustrating. Whether it's with your kids. I mean, it's very easy to get angry at kids because you, your job is to control them. It's not actually, I guess, but you feel like it sometimes. You feel like your job is to control them, and you know what? You often can't. And it's like, just do the thing that I want you to do that's not embarrassing, or just do. And all of a sudden you find yourself getting frustrated at them because you can't control it. You get frustrated at your job and mad because you can't control it. You get angry at your boss because you can't control him. You get angry at the keys and at traffic because you can't control what those other drivers are doing. And it's the areas that you don't have control are the areas that make you angry. So what can you do about it? Well, I'm going to end with five things, and these don't all come from the Bible. These are uh, hopefully helpful. Uh, I, think, I don't think any of them are against what comes from the Bible. But uh, these are five things that I think, at least in my experience and in my reading, uh, can be helpful to uh, helping us recognize and overcome anger when we find it taking over. And the first thing I would say, it's rather simple, but try to overcome anger. Um, so often, we are passive to our own emotions and feelings and responses. And we just think, well, if I'm angry, then I'm justified in my anger. And I would say, when you feel angry, start trying to not just let it win. Start trying not to fight the person who made you anger, but try to fight the anger itself and see what you can gain control of again. Don't lose control of yourself in angry. Don't be passive to your own uh, body, but try to, uh, to uh, see if you can respond with love even if you're feeling anger. Respond with compliments even when you're thinking those insults. And maybe with time, uh, your brain will start to follow suit. Your behavior could actually uh, perhaps uh, control or, or alter your, your cognition. And, and you can uh, start to control and grow better habits of how to respond with anger that way. Uh, number two, this is uh, one that I think is important. I would say time management. Um, for me personally, I am way more likely to get angry when I'm running late, when I'm trying to hurry, and there's people keeping me from hurrying, or my keys being lost is keeping me from hurrying, or, uh, you know, you're, you're, trying, you're trying to get out the door and not everyone's dressed yet, or there's a shoe that's lost or something. It's often when you're in a hurry, and then all of a sudden there's traffic. And, you know, we could be the most selfish and horrible people in the world during traffic. We can, like everyone else, we all have to be stopped. We're all in this thing together because someone up ahead of us maybe had an accident. Some terrible misfortune has befallen them. And all we can think about is my 20 minutes that I'm now so mad that I'm losing. And we can forget about, like, what actually matters in life very easily because time is frustrating us and something's taking longer than it should. Well, maybe hurry a little bit less. Uh, maybe try to give yourself more time. Uh, maybe focus a little bit less on uh, having such a rigid schedule. Loosen a few things up, and that could end up helping you in a lot of areas of life, anger being one of them. Uh, I would say exercise. Just actually exercising is a good way uh, to de-stress and to regulate anger as it comes your way. Uh, it's also healthy for you. And so I would say if you find yourself consistently getting angry, um, maybe start a good healthy exercise routine. Uh, start walking outside. 
Spend some time in nature, get a sweat going, spend some time in the sunlight, and uh, you'd be amazed at how much externals like that can begin to affect uh, you on the inside. Um, Another one, and this one's difficult, speak honestly. Speak honestly. Um, If you find yourself consistently having negative thoughts about another person, if you find yourself consistently having negative thoughts about your spouse, and you won't say them, but you just think about them, and you think them, and you think them, and they grow, and then every time they make a small slight, you just add another thing to that pile of frustrating feelings that you have towards them, then that can often turn into a consistent passive-aggressive attitude towards that person. It can turn into an explosion against that person about virtually nothing. Then all of a sudden they realize, you know, why are you so mad about the fact that I, you know, left the whatever? And, And all of a sudden, like, something small can fester into something big if you're not honest and loving and communicative. Talk. And say, I love you to death. But in order to keep that loving you to death, um, let's make sure that, uh, no, you just, just but, but have uh, honest conversations about perhaps some of the things that frustrate you, and um, try to be a good listener as well, and uh, you, you'll probably notice that fights and anger and irrational uh, uh, outbursts of wrath and all of that stuff uh, will start to dwindle. And then finally, and this is one that I want to say now, and I want to be very clear about it, and I want to be clear about it uh, for every one of these uh, sermons that is coming up for a while. Uh, I would say if you find yourself struggling with anger and you're having a hard time getting control of it, go to counseling. Go to counseling. Um, I think among Christians, not among all Christians, uh, among some, there's a very unhealthy idea that you either solve problems through Jesus and prayer or you solve problems through the world and counseling or something like that. And that's a very foolish way to divide up the world. Jesus can help you in many different ways. Uh, Jesus can help you certainly through prayer. He can help you through a loving community who's there to help build you up and encourage you and strengthen you. He can help you through professionals who are trained to help you. Uh, Just like if you're having a physical problem with your body and you, yeah, pray about it. Yeah, talk to the community about it, but also go to a doctor. Uh, I think the same thing is true when you're you're experiencing um, either uh, anger or mental uh, stress or instability, go to someone who's qualified, who's trained, and who can actually help you with those things. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a weakness of your faith. It could actually be something that is very uh, beneficial and uplifting to your faith. You know, there's, there's a joke that I'm, a lot of people have heard. It's probably the most common uh, I, I can remember hearing from a pulpit. Um, I don't know if it's more of a joke or an illustration, but whatever, here it is. Uh, Someone's out drowning. I think there was a big flood, and he's drowning, and uh, he's praying to God to be saved, and a boat comes by and says, hey, hop on. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm praying to God. God will save me. And the boat says, okay, fine. And the boat goes off. And then another boat shows up like 20 minutes later, and the guy says, hey, come on. Let's get... And he says, no, no, no. I'm praying to God. God's going to save me. You just go on your way. And then finally a helicopter shows up, and it drops the ladder, and he says, hop on board. And he says, no, no. God's going to save me. You just go on your way. I'm trusting in God and not you. And then all of a sudden the guy dies. And uh, he's standing before God, and he says, I prayed, and I trusted, and I was faithful. Why didn't you save me? And God says, well, I sent two boats and a helicopter. And I was like, what, what do you expect? Um, sometimes uh, the answer, the way that we can get help, it might not come through a miracle 
of God just miraculously flipping a switch in your heart. Maybe a counselor is the way that God can help. Maybe uh, your church family and bring in talking to the community is a way that God can help. Maybe prayer is a way that God can help. But let's not exclude one of those as being somehow uh, an opposite of faith. No, God can use professionals in a lot of ways. He uses doctors, I believe. I think he can use mental health professionals as well. So all of these are things that I think we could consider if we find ourselves struggling more and more with anger. And they are each ways that can help us become more obedient in our lives and in our uh, faithfulness to Jesus. Now I want you to ask yourself, um, are you living the type of life that you want to live, especially when it comes to anger? Um, how do you treat your kids? How do you treat your spouse? How do you talk about your coworkers? How do you respond in traffic? Um, I bet we can all find areas where we can do better. And the challenge this week is to actively try to do better. Use one of the things that we just talked about, uh, but just be intentional. When you find yourself getting angry, don't say something mean. Just make that first step. Don't say something mean. If you could be silent, that's a good start. Uh, then, uh, you know, if you can actually find positive things about the people who are you, that might be a good additional step. And not only will it build relationships, it'll make your life better too. It's amazing how often the things Jesus says not only help men relationships and not only honor God, they're actually healthy for you if you will take them seriously and try to apply them. And if we can help you uh, in any way, this community would love to help. Uh, and if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian tonight, uh, God loves you. Jesus died for you. Salvation is offered to you. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life and have your sins washed away in baptism through him. If we can help you do that, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.